This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we do pray, would you reveal Jesus to us? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you stir in us, challenge us, mess with us, open our eyes that we might see Christ, and we know if we see him, we'll be changed, and so will you open our eyes? That's our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, our third service is joining us on video tonight, so will you just welcome them with me? Let's just say hi. And I will um, add my emphatic amen, yes, thank you, Jesus, to um, uh, the hiring of an executive pastor. I, I can't wait till he gets here. So there, if you want to make a tunnel with me that he can run through, uh, high fives, juice boxes for everyone. Uh, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so excited. And I'm excited to jump into God's word today. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to be camping out for the first part of our time together. We're in a series over, um, starting last week and over the next two weeks, where we're exploring the both power and prominence of the scriptures. And so for uh, millennia, this, this book, this really, it's a collection of writings. I think you should view it more as, as a library than a book. It's, it's 66 different books written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years, uh, three different continents with one central message whose name is... Jesus, right, so we're, we're, dialed, we're dialed in today, and we're, we want to look at why is the Bible so significant? Why has it transformed cultures, transformed lives, transformed cities for the last few thousand years? What is it about this collection of writings that's so significant? And while we said last week we don't want to impose on it, we want to receive from it. We want the Bible to tell us why it's such a big deal. I did some research this week, though, and I wanted to sort of answer the question, and I want to pose it to you today also. The Bible is fill in the blank. How would you answer that question? The Bible is what? So I Googled that, and anytime you Google something, Google thinks they're smarter than you, and so they're like, hey, um, we think we know what you're going to say. Right, And so they, they want to finish the sentence. So I, I just put in there, the Bible is, and here's what came up. Here's what came up. The Bible is um, a lie. The Bible is a lie. Uh, the Bible is fake. The Bible's fake. See, Google doesn't know me all that well. They have all these analytics on me. This, this is not where I'm going with this. The Bible is bull, right? You fill in the blank. The Bible is fake. The Bible is a lie. The Bible is bull. And the Bible is the word of God. Well, they're one for four, Google is. So that's, um, I guess that's okay. But how would you fill in the blank? How would you fill in the blank? You see, in, in a room this size with this many people there, we come in from diff with different perspectives and at different places on our journey of faith and different thoughts about who God is. And at the onset, I just want to say, regardless of how you walk in these doors, you're welcome here. However you would answer this question, you're welcome here. Some of us would answer the question, the Bible is confusing. And to that I would say, I agree with you. There's parts of it that are, that are very confusing. 
The Bible is sort of difficult. It's hard to know which parts of it should we still practice today and, and, and which parts of it um, uh, did Jesus come and sort of redefine for us. We're going to talk about that, that next week. The Bible, if you've read through it cover to cover, the Bible has a tendency to be fairly violent. We're going to cover that. We're going to look at, we're going to ask that question over the next few weeks. The Bible is archaic. I mean, we read some stuff in there, and some of you would answer, that's how you would answer. The Bible is archaic. It just, it, it, it talks about a whole different world and a different time, and not a lot of it's all that applicable to our situation today. That one I'd tend to push back on a little bit and go, I don't know if you've read it well. The Bible's inconsistent. I've heard that a lot. I mean, Paulson, how can you take uh, at face value the Bible when there's, even in the resurrection accounts of Jesus, there's a different, differing accounts of the life, the resurrection of Christ. How do, you, how do you interact with that? How do you enter into that? The Bible is, how would you fill in the blank? How would you fill in the blank? And throughout this series, I want to ask the question from the scriptures, what do you say about yourself? The Bible is. Last week, we said, the way that one of the ways that the Bible answers that question is by saying that it is inspired, that it's breathed out by God. And so by that we said, and we, what we mean by that is that scripture has its inception not in the minds of men, but in the heart of God. That God, through his Holy Spirit, speaks into the lives of people who write down what he wants them to communicate. And in the Bible, we have exactly what God wants us to have exactly what God wants us to have. But Timothy, or Paul writing to Timothy, will expand on that. He's gonna expand on that. So he wouldn't just fill in the blank. The Bible is inspired, or the Bible is God-breathed. Literally, it's a breath of heaven that gets in the sails of humanity and carries them to the destiny that God wants them to have. It is that. It is that. But, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Listen to the way that Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, to encourage him to continue to preach the scriptures, to continue to live the scriptures, and to allow them to shape and form them. He wants to tell us why they're so significant. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. If you have a, an NIV translation, it says, it, and, and useful, useful, for teaching, for reproof, and correction, so, so he's going to say there's a, an aspect to the scriptures where we don't only read the scriptures, but the scriptures read us. Yes? Have you, ever, have you experienced this? You, go, you dive into a passage, you start reading it, and although you're the one reading, you feel like the scripture's reading you. There's something that it shines on your heart, in your life, where God says, that's for you today, right now. Yes? Yeah, so it's, and that, that's that reproof and correction. God, there's some things that I need to repent of, some things that I need to change. That's a, the power of the scriptures, the significance of the scriptures. And for training in righteousness, the, the scripture is useful for teaching us how to live in the way of Jesus, how to walk with him. And, and Paul goes on to say, that the man of God or the person of God might be complete, might be, might be full or, or finished, equipped for how many? Every good work. It's really interesting because what Paul writes to Timothy is there's a significant power in the pages of Scripture. That because it's 
breathed by God, that he breathed it into existence, and as we said last week, he breathes through it into the lives of those who are come to it by faith and filled with the Spirit. He breathes through it into the lives of believers. But he says, in addition to that, the Bible has this unique ability to shape and transform by, by teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that we might walk into the world differently, that we might be equipped for every single good work. Did you know the Bible has that type of power? I started to wonder, has our neglect or potential neglect of the scriptures blinded our eyes to the ways that we could make a difference in this world? Because that's what Tim, that's what Paul's writing to Timothy. Don't miss out on this wealth of beauty and transformative power and knowledge, transformative knowledge that would get into your heart and life and allow you to see the world different. Oh. See, so when you wake up in the morning and engage with God through his scriptures, it's not just a discipline and it's not just delight, it's a lens through which you enter into the rest of your day. That's huge. That's significant. He says, the scripture is what? Profitable. Right, so we go over this not every week, but almost every, whenever I point to a word, whenever my finger's right below a word, that's the word I want, I want you to read. So the, the scriptures are what? Profitable. profitable, right. If you have an NIV, useful, useful. I, I was thinking of things in my life that, that are useful, right? Um, I, I do the dishes most nights in our house, and, and my dishwasher is useful, Especially if, it's pa especially if it's loaded correctly, right? Anybody else crazy about that? Like, don't, don't, why would you put that there? Stop, back away, this is important. That's, that's, so yeah, but I love you know, the fact that we don't have to wash everything by hand and just load it in there and it gets the job done. Here's another one, and if you wanna get a little charismatic and say an amen, I'm with you. You know what else is useful in my life? My coffee maker, useful, very useful. Love. I love the fact that I have a car in my garage. I, get, I don't have to ride my horse to work, right? And I don't even know if this is how you ride a horse. I don't know what would happen if I were on a horse like this, but tell me afterwards. Uh, my, my washing machine, our dryer, useful, useful. A lot of stuff in my life, useful. I have never put the Bible in that category. Have you? useful, profitable, for shaping us into the people that God would have us be for the glory of his name and for our joy as we walk with him. The scripture is useful, profitable, for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. In fact, the psalmist is going to say in Psalm 119, he says, oh God, I have, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's, that's man, your, your scripture is useful, oh God, for helping me walk in a way that would honor you and that would allow me to walk in joy. This is pragmatic. This is, this is practical. This isn't some ethereal supernatural type of knowledge. This is feet on the ground, boots on the ground. How do we live in a way that would lead to our joy and God's glory? And what Paul writes to Timothy is, the scriptures are, they, they're useful. When I lived in California, we would um, occasionally go out to the desert 
And as you would drive out to the desert, out east, um, going uh, like from LA to, to Palm Springs, you would pass by these wind farms, these like tur- wind turbines. And on it, there were these just huge windmills. They, um, they didn't look like this at all, but you get the idea, right? I, did, I couldn't get one of those in here. And so here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. The wind blows on the wind turbine, on the windmill, and it starts to turn. Uh, it starts to turn this, and there's a shaft that's attached to a generator, and as the wind turns it, there's an energy that's created, and the energy is then stored in a battery, and they do all sorts of stuff like this, but, but the point is the wind blows on something and moves it, and it creates an energy. It creates a, a force, and as We said last week, not only is scripture God breathed, but it's also God breathing. It's the the breath of heaven. It's the wind of heaven, if you will. And when we position our lives under the scriptures to receive the breath of heaven on our lives, it doesn't just leave us stagnant. It actually, it, it moves us. It creates an energy in our lives. It creates a vitality. It creates an ability to be shaped and formed by the very person of God. See, this isn't some trivial thing we do when we come to the scriptures. When when Paul writes to Timothy and says, "It's, it's practical, it's profitable, it can change you, he's extending an invitation, both to you and to I, I love the way that Martin Luther put it when he said, the enemy's main objective is to lead us to ignore and utterly cast away God's word and his work. That if he can get you to ignore the scriptures, he can cut off your source of life. As God says through the prophet Isaiah, we started our service with this, draw near, incline your ear that you might hear and that your soul may what? Live, that your soul might live, that he might, by his very word that is his breath, breathe on you and create a life in you, an energy in you, a vitality in you that wasn't there before. You see, it's to our own, our own, our own peril that we neglect God's word. And like I said, this isn't about feeling guilty. It's about positioning ourselves to receive life. This is a hedonistic endeavor, And what I want to do is I want to show you from the scriptures how Jesus uses the word of God in his life to walk in victory. How Jesus uses the word in his life to walk in victory. Will you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. Because I want to just apply this idea to the life of Christ. The scripture's useful. And I want to ask him how. I want to ask him how. It says this, starting in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the, into the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I love it when the Bible tells us some obvious stuff, Right? But here's what Luke wants to prevent you from doing, from thinking that Jesus is somehow different than you, that he's not fully human. 
that he could go 40 days without eating and not be hungry. Luke goes, oh, no, 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 no. He's fully divine, but he's fully man. And he was fully hungry. Notice, Jesus, full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, where? Into the wilderness and directly into the teeth of temptation. See, I talk to a lot of followers of Christ who assume that Jesus would not want them to go through anything difficult or hard. And so their theology is built around this idea that God wants life to be A, comfortable, and B, always goes according to plan. And when it doesn't, we're like, well, what the heck, God? Where are you in this? And part of what scripture does is it invites us into a different way of looking at reality and saying, well, see, God is as interested in your formation as he is in anything else. And so before he launches Jesus into his public ministry, he says, all right, you're gonna be in a place where you need to rely on me, where you need to trust in me, where you need to grow, and where you need to start to learn how to walk in my truth in a little bit different ways. Okay, just look up at me for just a second. If it happened to Jesus, might he do the same thing in our life? That maybe not every trial and every temptation means we're outside of God's will, but maybe it, believe, maybe it means we're, we're right in the center of it, and God is inviting us to grow by applying his useful word to our real situations. And so we see this in the life of Christ. He's full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness where it's dry and desolate, into temptation where he needs to use the word of God to fend off the enemy. And so here's two things I want to say at the onset before we jump in. What you'll see is that Jesus is um, attacked or tempted by the enemy, and he answers Okay, so the enemy's gonna come and say, you should do this, and Jesus is gonna answer with scripture. Now, here's why that's so significant. Because I think we often answer temptation by ignorance rather than by actually giving an answer. So we will we'll typically run from something. There's a place, a biblical place and time for that, but, but not out of ignorance, out of this is actually how I'm fighting. But we'll often just try to ignore the things in our life that are attacking us the thoughts that are swirling around, rather than giving a definitive answer. Actually, this is what God's word says about that. Thank you very much, devil. You can go away now because I'm gonna ground my life on the truth of the scriptures. And so instead of just ignoring our desires, I think we need to speak into them with the truth that God's given us in his word. So that's number one. You see Jesus answer rather than ignore. And the second thing is you see the scriptures that are, they're gonna give Jesus victory. And here's the thing, here's the thing. He wants you to walk in victory too. This isn't health, wealth, and prosperity. This is simply truth. And it, it happens to be God wants to bless you because he's a good father. And he wants to teach you how to walk in that. And that looks way different in everybody's life. But, but that's the truth of the matter. Jesus walks in victory that God provides. And you know what the scriptures say? Thanks be to God who gives us his victory. His victory. And part of the reason that we don't walk in it is because we don't use the scriptures right. We don't use the scriptures right. Um, the book of Ephesians, Paul 
writes to the church at Ephesus, and he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. The word of God. So here's the way I want to say it for us this morning. You can write this down in your outline, in your bulletin if you want. If not, that's fine. But using the Bible correctly, using the Bible correctly allows us to walk in victory consistently. You're gonna see it in the life of Jesus and it's available and possible for every single life in this room today. But here's the truth, friends. We can't just read the scriptures, we need to use the scriptures. We can't just know the scriptures. We need to use, we need to use the scriptures. We can't, just, we can't just study the scriptures. We have to use them. There's a difference, right? There's an application that starts to come in the life of the believer where we say, I'm not just studying and this isn't just information. God, this is you speaking into my life in a way that causes transformation. I'm different because of it. And I'm gonna speak into the lies that the enemy would love for me to believe with the truth of who you are and what you've done. I'm not just gonna ignore it. I'm gonna answer it. I'm gonna answer it based on what you've said is true about yourself, and about me. Well, Jesus, in the desert, 40 days, at the end of that time, he's hungry, and that's where we pick up the story. It says, and the devil came to him, and the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Now, this is going to be all throughout. You say, it is written, it is written, it is written. And what he's going to do, he's going to point back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and he's going to say, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The passage in Deuteronomy goes on to say, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here's what the enemy would love to do. He would love to see an unmet desire in the life of the Messiah and propose that he satisfy that desire in a way outside of the provision of his father. That's what he wants to do. He wants to say, Jesus, use your power in order to turn this stone into bread. We all know you can do that, right? Right? So why don't you just, why don't you just prove it? Just do it. That emptiness that haunts your soul, why don't you satisfy it by going there and by doing that? And here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes the scriptures, the Old Testament, he takes the scriptures, he applies them to his life, and he realizes, I know that I need that bread, but more than I need that bread, I need your word, oh God. And he uses the scriptures to point back to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his desires are satisfied. He's realigned with the heart of his father, He's, um, I, I learned uh, I am not Mr. Fix-It at all, but um, most of the fixtures in our home were original, 1978. I'm, I'm convinced they're gonna, they were gonna come back around um, into style, but I cut them off at the past, and I said, no, I'm gonna learn how to do this, and so I did, and, and my friend tells me, he's like, hey, um, replacing light fixtures is easy. All you gotta do is you gotta make sure that the light is turned off, the switch is turned off, that's important. He's like, Paulson, are you dialed in here? Look up at me. The switch has to be off, right? I'm like, the switch has to be off. And he says, and make sure your kids don't come by and turn it back on. 
which by the way, they did one time. That's a whole other story. And so he goes, and then all you have to do is you take the old fixture off and you just have to connect the black one to the black one and the white one to the white one and you gotta ground it and then you're good to go. He's like, if the wires are connected, you've got electricity and you'll have light. I think Jesus' interaction with the scriptures are the same way. He goes like, you just gotta be connected and know that the good father meets every desire he places in your soul and in your heart. And if he can't meet it, look up at me, you don't need to carry it. If he can't meet it, you don't need to carry it. And Jesus uses the scriptures. He uses them to remind himself that the deepest longings of his soul are met in his father. That's what he does. I exist, I live by every mouth or every word that comes from your mouth, oh God. I love this passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah says, oh, your words were found. Your words were found and I, I ate them up. You love that picture? Oh God, just, I just need your truth. I need your transformative power in my life. I'm, I am hungry for it, God. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And you see, here's the two desires that Jesus, uh, that, that God speaks into, the Father speaks into and meets in the life of Christ. And, and they're two things that I think the enemy goes after in our life as well. Number one, you'll see. In Luke chapter four, he says, if you really are the son of God, what does the enemy wanna do? He wants to erode his confidence in his identity. He knows if I can erode his confidence in his identity, I can displace his victory. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you. So he says, hey, so prove it. Prove that you're the, the son. Prove that you're a, a child of the most high God. If the devil can make you prove your adoption, he can make you doubt your salvation. That's worth writing down. If you need to prove that you're a child of God based on the way you behave, eventually you'll come to the point where your behavior will not match up with who God says you are. So you'll have a conversation in your head that goes a little bit like this. The enemy planting thoughts in your mind. How can you claim to be a, the son of God when you're struggling with such egregious sin? How can you claim to be the son of God when you treat your kids like that? How can you claim to be a son of the most high God adopted into his family when your life is in such shambles? Am I, am I alone? I mean, Ben here thought this. And so that's why we need the truth of the scriptures over the things that we often believe because the truth of the scripture is in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, now this, this idea, all this means is it wasn't because you were awesome. It's because he's awesome that he chose you, he adopted you according to the purpose of his will. So he answers the question, God, why, why me, why me? And he goes, because I wanted to. That's why. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, he's going to try to attack your identity. And when he does, the truth of the scriptures needs to wash over you. Second thing, he's going to try to get you to doubt his provision. 
So Jesus is wrestling with, I'm starving, I'm hungry. God, are you gonna come through? It would be easier to just subvert your plan and your will and do a miracle that would cause this stone to turn to bread. And God says, absolutely, wait on me, wait on me, wait on me. I'm good. My covenantal faithfulness lasts throughout every generation and yours is no different. Psalm 105 says this, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to, what? All generations. He will be faithful. He wants to cause doubt in our identity and our provision. But Jesus says, my desires are satisfied because he's met the deepest ones of them by calling me his own and providing me for me like his son. And that's how the word starts to be used in our life. In the same way it's used in the life of Jesus. Continuing on, verse five. It says, and the, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of, of the world in a moment and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, circle that, those two words, worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall serve him only. You shall serve him only. And so here's the next attack on the enemy. Jesus, why don't you just do something for yourself, man? Like, I've got, I've got all of this, it's all mine, but, but you could, it could be yours. And so he plays to and a very human and innate desire for power and authority and prominence. Have you ever experienced this in your life? Maybe I should take this shortcut so I can get that promotion, right? Or may, maybe I should, I could tell this little lie, it's gonna make me look a little bit better. Oh, that's just me? And so here's what the scriptures do. They invite us back into the reality that we often lose sight of. And it's simply this, we are not at the center of the universe, but he is, and Jesus is. And he points back and he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he uses scripture to remember my devotion is tied to my Messiah. My devotion is tied to my God. My devotion is tied as followers of Jesus, to the one who gave his life for me. And it's this scripturally informed devotion and worship that provides a pathway for victory in the life of the believer, that provides a pathway. Because if our worship wanes, our lives go off track. I always say this mostly because it's true. Um, you always worship your way into sin and you worship your way out. You worship your way in and you worship your way out. And Jesus says, no, my, I'm informed by the scriptures. They are shaping my worship and it's grounding my life and allowing me to walk in the way of my father. See, I, I'm just gonna give you three quick things, uh, reasons as to why I believe and am convinced that a scripturally informed devotion is worth your hedonistic quest, okay? So this is ultimately for your joy to keep God on the throne of your heart and of your life because he sits on the throne of the universe and to use the scriptures in order to do that. First, relaxing our devotion leads to compromise in our conviction. Every time, every time. 
before you fall to temptation, you fail in devotion. Before you fall to temptation, you fail in devotion. So uh, Dr. John Piper writes this. He says, the way to fight lust, and I would say this, the lust for power, the lust, uh, lust sexually, lust, lust in every shape and form, the way we fight lust is to feed faith with the knowledge of an irresistible, glorious God. How, how do we fight temptation in our soul? By feeding, feasting on the glory of God, keeping our worship hot for our Savior. Why? Because we're most susceptible to sin and we're most susceptible to temptation. When we're in the position that Jesus was in, where we're hungry, when we're alone, and when we're at the end of our rope. And it's those times that we need the Spirit to dwell on the wells of truth that we've deposited over the course of time to bring them to the forefront and remind us, this is not about me. This is about you. And I need to repent of my desire for power and authority and prominence and remember, you're at the center of it all. Hey, can we be honest for a second? If we were able to do that, how much hurt and heartache would that prevent? It, those conversations that we just wish we could take back. The reason we have some of those conversations is because we're not, we're, we are on the throne of our life. So number one, relaxed devotion leads to compromised conviction. Before you fall to temptation, you fail in devotion every time. Two, misdirected worship leads to distrust in God's timing. So when my worship for God starts to wane, my confidence in God starts to shake. And so I start to ask questions like, well, God, I feel like you've promised me this, and I feel like you spoke into this, and God, I feel like you're gonna be good to this, and you promise that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know what's interesting? Is the devil tempts Jesus by saying, why don't you take authority and get something that you're gonna get eventually? You notice that? Listen to what the devil tempts him and says. He says, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. Well, it's interesting that Paul writes to the church at Philippi talking about Jesus and he says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above how many? Sure sounds like all authority, right? Above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the enemy wants to entice Jesus by saying, why don't you just subvert the Father's plan for the cross and take what's rightfully yours outside of the timing that God has provided? And so this happens all the time, right? We cut corners in our businesses because we believe, man, God, you've, you've promised this. We, we do things in relationships that we wouldn't do, let's be honest, if we were patient on and confident in our Father. And worship is the thing, a scripture-based worship is the thing that stimulates the human soul to say back to God, God, I'm, you're, you're in charge here. And when my patience starts to break, what's really happening underneath is my worship is starting to give way. Jesus knows that. He says, no, my life is shaped and formed by my Father. He has all of my worship and so I'm gonna serve him. And the third thing is that fledgling worship always leads to failing service. It always does. 
When my worship wanes, I start to buy the lie of the American dream. That's just me. That if I have a little more, bit more, I'll be a little bit happier. Hey, I, I, met, I met a lot of people that had some really crazy dreams about winning the lottery this week, huh? And I'm not, I live in a glass house and I'm not casting stones, right? I mean, it starts to shape and form us, but worship causes us to continue to serve our great God. And it's scripture that says, hey, he sits enthroned at the universe. Look up at me for a second. Maybe, maybe he's trustworthy on the throne of your life. And so it ends like this. And Jesus, and he took him to Jerusalem. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, notice this, I'm just gonna wear, he's just gonna wear away your identity. That's why I, I almost every week will remind you, you're a child of the most high God. That his blood has covered all of your sin. You've been adopted into his family. He's placed his spirit inside of you that cries out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Why? Because one of the things the enemy wants to do is erode your identity, okay? He says, so if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Now, here's what the devil breaks out the big guns here. Because he starts to quote scripture back to Jesus. He's like, oh, you want to play that game? Oh, I know some verses too. And there's this verse in Psalm chapter 91 that says, well, angels will guard you when you fall. So why don't you climb up on top of the building and jump off and, and prove it? And prove it. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Listen, he's quoting directly. Psalm 91. He's proof texting directly. Because what the psalmist is writing about is, God, you're going to be faithful in the difficult seasons. Even then, your hand is going to come alongside, and it's going to work, and it's going to move, and it's going to shape, and so therefore, we can have confidence in you. Now, proof text is, hey, why don't you climb up on top of, the, of South Fellowship Church and swan dive off? But Psalm 91 says God's going to catch you. Now, my hope is there's something in, in your spirit that goes, I don't think that's right. <laughs> and I want to affirm that. I don't think that's right. And here's the way Jesus responds. He goes, well, it's interesting because um, I, I know um, not just some scripture, but all scripture. And it also says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's he doing? Good hermeneutics is what he's doing. Good her he's taking the whole of scripture and using it to look at passages through that lens. But on a bigger level, what's he doing? He's taking the enemy's desire to deceive and he's washing it in the truth of who God is. See, because scripture not only, not only satisfies our desires, not only stimulates our devotions, but it also, when it gets inside of us, it speaks into our deceit. It starts to challenge some of the presuppositions and the things that we hold to be so true. And you know why that's such a big deal, friends? Is because the things you believe will eventually determine the life that you live. The things you believe will determine the life that you live. And Jesus' scripture-shaped world leads him to a life of victory and a life of abundance and a life of joy. Here's what the book of Romans and Paul writing to the church at Rome invites us to live into. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind, 
your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect will. Oh, can we be honest for a moment? I think some of us believe some lies that are from the pit of hell. Some of us believe, and it's, and it's the symbolism of Jesus standing on top of the temple and hearing scripture misinterpreted and misapplied is not lost on me because some of the ways that we've started to believe and had lies ingrained in us is by some bad teaching, some teaching that would say, well, you've got to earn God's love by the way that you behave and perform. Oh, come on now. Come on now. It's by grace that I've been saved through faith, and this is not of my own. It is a gift from God. Praise him. It's not about my performance. It's about Jesus' performance. Thank you very much. For because I've heard it said that because of, of sin and sinful lives that people are worthless. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because Jesus places great worth on humanity. It's the crowning jewel of his creation and he loves it so much he died for it. Come on now. And so when we start believing these lies, we've got to wash them with the truth of the scripture. We've, some people in here, you believe the lie that a shady past has determined your future. And what I'll say to that is who in the scriptures didn't have a shady past? One guy. His name is Jesus, right? And so what the psalmist will say is as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions from me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. God loves me if I perform and produce. Well, God loves me because Jesus performed and produced. And so it's in that we start to see and believe. The greatest lie you and I believe is that we either don't need a savior or that we can save ourselves. And what scripture does is it starts to get in us, starts to turn in us. We realize not only that we are people in desperate need, but we're people dearly loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords by our good father. And scripture, it satisfies our desires. It stirs our devotion and it speaks into our deceit. It speaks into our deceit. So this week, we've been walking through the book of Luke together. I, I hope you've joined us. I, if you haven't, it's not too late. Join us. But just some of the ways that he's satisfied and, and spoken these things into my life, I just want to share with you out of our, just our reading in the book of Luke this week. He satisfied her desires. I, I read about Jesus being baptized in the voice of God. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. And, and I just heard God's voice over me too saying, Ryan, you're my son too. You're my son too stimulates our devotion. There's a passage in Luke chapter 11 we read a few days ago. It says, if your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. And I'm going, God, I just, I want that. I want every fiber of my being to be filled with your glorious light. So help me, help me see you. It was this turn back and worship type of moment. He speaks into my deceit. And I saw the kingdom of God coming with power throughout the first 14 chapters of Luke in a way that I'd just never seen before. I'm going, God, you are living and active, alive today. Holy Spirit, do a new work. Blow in a new way. Move in power, because I believe your kingdom comes with power. And I want to encourage you, whether it's in our little reading plan for the next 23 days or 
whether it's in your own, to invest time in the word because here's God's promise to you, friend. Here's God's promise to you, friend. It does not return void. It will accomplish what he sets out for it to accomplish. And so allow it to satisfy you. Allow him to satisfy you through it. Allow him to stir your devotion as you see Jesus is glorious. And allow it to speak into your deceit because the things you believe will determine the life you live and the truth that God is for you will give you victory. And see, using the scriptures rightly allows us to walk in victory consistently. Look up at me one last time. Jesus wants it for you and he's provided a way. So let's use his word to walk in his light. Let's pray, let's pray. In fact, uh, I'm gonna invite you to stand and we're just gonna close our time like this. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your head. And without any guilt, without any shame, without the thought that the enemy would love to plant in your mind, man, you should be doing more, you should be doing better, or you're such a failure, and I'm so glad they're teaching on the scriptures because, boy, you need it more than anybody else in this room. And before you start going there, I just want to just pause. And I just want you to hear the voice of your father speaking over you that he loves you. Inviting you to use this beautiful tool of his word to walk in the victory he's already provided. So in a way devoid of guilt and shame, Jesus, we just wanna say back to you, we love you and we're so grateful that you're for us. And we admit that in many ways we're learning what it looks like to use your word in the way that you designed for it to be used. And so this week, would you speak into areas of our life? Would you satisfy devotions? Would you stir our worship? Would you speak into the lies that we believe through your glorious word? That we might walk more in the way of Jesus. That we might be ready, prepared for every good work that you bring into our life. And we believe you're bringing them. Open our eyes to see them and step into them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.